<laughs> this is more than duplicative language. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they are shaping the political landscape. On today's outstanding panel, returning to the roundup, Lucy Caldwell, a veteran political strategist, tech founder. She's board advisor at the Renew Democracy Initiative and a former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Lucy, as always, wonderful to have you here. It's good so good to spend these last few hours of the year with you. <laughs> here we go. And also returning to politicology is Zach Joukowsky. Zach is a Democratic political consultant from North Carolina. He's a principal at Title Fight and the founder and CEO of Brackish Solutions. Previously, he served as the campaign manager for Katie Hill's successful congressional campaign, flipping a seat from red to blue, and as political director of the Lincoln Project. Zach, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Ron. Up first this week, Hamas rejects an Egyptian plan for a long-term ceasefire, and it got very little mainstream media coverage. Then we dive into the plagiarism allegations against Harvard President Claudine Gay, and the increasing calls for her resignation. Later, we'll look at the Michigan State Supreme Court deciding Trump can stay on their primary ballot and the recording of Trump pressuring Michigan elections officials not to certify the 2020 election. After the main show, we're going to head over to Politicology Plus, where we will talk about the new reporting that your devices are, in fact, listening to you and advertisers are targeting you based on what you say. We'll talk about the reporting and also the potential impact on political advertising going into 2024. To join us for that discussion, plus more ad-free episodes, all on a private podcast feed, go to politicology.com slash plus, or just open the show notes for this episode and click the link right at the top. On Monday, Egypt proposed a plan to end the Israel-Hamas war. And it would have included a ceasefire permanently, a phased hostage release of Israeli hostages held in Gaza and Palestinian prisoners in Israel, the creation of a, quote, Palestinian government of experts in Gaza and the West Bank. Egypt worked with Qatar to create the plan. They had shared the plan with Israel, Hamas, the United States, and European governments, but the plan was still preliminary. And then on Tuesday, Reuters reported that Hamas and Islamic Jihad rejected a permanent ceasefire deal proposed by Egypt. But Hamas has rejected offering any concessions beyond the release of more hostages taken during the attack on October 7th. So I learned about this on Twitter, and it has been reported on by some publications, although the coverage is quite difficult to parse, except for the Reuters story, which was relatively clear. But the deal, and specifically Hamas's rejection of it, have been in my view, widely underreported. And just as an example, we weren't able to find a single story in the New York Times while we were preparing for this episode. The Times also ran a headline in the Friday print edition that read, quote, Gaza death surpasses any Arab war losses in 40 years. That's not true. The estimated death toll in the war in Syria between 2011 and 2021 is over 306,000. Uh, the article itself was clear that it was the highest death toll for any Arab conflict with Israel in 40 years. But the archived version of the online article had a more specific headline, even on Thursday night, which was before the print publication, that included the word Israel. So the print publication was factually wrong, but the online version included the words with Israel. 
On Sunday, the Times published a guest essay by the Hamas-appointed mayor of Gaza City. It didn't make any mention of the hostages taken by Hamas on October 7th. And um, this has been widely thrown around as a, uh, as a comparison to what the Times did in 2020, which was to publish a, an essay by a sitting U.S. senator uh, that ended up with people getting fired or pushed out of the editorial uh, department for that. And now they seem to be okay with running an op-ed by um, Hamas, essentially. So I'll stop there. Those are a few examples of some of the controversies surrounding the coverage around uh, October 7th and the ensuing war. How have you both thought about the time specifically since October 7th? And, um, you know, for the last several weeks, this topic has been coming back up because there's been more and more instances of fraudulent, I would argue, coverage in some cases or very explicit bias in others, um, specifically at the Times. And we've been wrestling with this question of, well, if mainstream journalistic institutions are going to squander their trust, what are ordinary observers of news coverage supposed to do? How are you supposed to parse fact from very biased coverage? Lucy, why don't we start with you? I guess I haven't given this a lot of thought because I have tended to think that on balance, most of the coverage of the Israel-Palestine, Israel-Gaza conflict has been very favorable to Israel that I generally tend to think that on balance, I don't necessarily know that I um, disagree with for example, the Times' decision to publish the op-ed by the Gaza city mayor. And I think that the uh, the uh, headline, for example, about the death toll, um, it is really regrettable. But it, it also doesn't necessarily seem to me that anyone at the Times was uh, trying to suggest that the death toll in this conflict is higher than the death toll in the Iraq war or other conflicts. It's sloppy and it's inexcusable for major publications, let alone any publication, to be sloppy. But I guess I would distinguish between sloppiness and those kinds of errors and uh, malice or agenda. And I don't know that I see the agenda that maybe some others are suggesting exists. So that may be a little bit lukewarm, but... <laughs> Did you have a reaction to the hospital bombing headline where they immediately jumped to the conclusion that it was an Israeli attack on the hospital? Yeah, that was that's a great example. That was terrible. That was terrible. Um, I also think that there are a lot of questions about how the UN has positioned itself in all of this and the relationship between the United Nations and media outlets and the fact that we expect the UN to be a neutral party in a lot of these things and it has not necessarily felt like that and that institutions like the UN or others not being trustworthy, it's sort of revealing how much of a reliance there is by media outlets on those institutions to be neutral arbiters. And so you can see that maybe the breakdown goes beyond just a single publication. But yes, that was terrible. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Zach, um, I'm, we haven't talked about this yet, I don't think. Um, but I learned 
that Hamas had rejected Egypt's deal on social media, actually, not not on a mainstream news site. Um, and when we were talking about this segment, I noted that uh, so I I have realized that recently I've come to trust someone like Jessica Yellen on uh, who's a seasoned reporter, for example, on Instagram, uh, sort of doing her own thing more than I have now trusted the New York Times, especially um, on their especially on the Israel Hamas coverage. So I'm wondering how you sift through this coverage. Do you think there is, do you think, do you see explicit bias in the coverage? Have you had a problem following what's, what's true? Um, and yeah. It's a, it's a really important question. You know, from, from what I've seen, there has been inconsistency. You know, there have been, there have been significant errors made like the, the, the hospital headline that we're talking about. Um, you know, like, like the lack of coverage of certain things that I find troubling, and the kind of the inconsistency of what is covered, what is not, of, of some kind of basic factual errors that have just happened a few too many times. I don't know that there's actual malice, but I do think that there is some sloppiness. And it's been really frustrating because I don't feel like the paper record has been consistently reliable on this issue. And so I am, I'm also looking for other places to kind of get my news around this. Um, and that's not to say that every article is riddled with inaccuracy. Some of them have been fantastic. And so that's why I, I, I'm trying to stick with inconsistency is, is how I view it, because not all the coverage has been bad, but some of it has certainly been particularly in the New York Times. I guess that the way I the way I'm thinking about this is that I see so much effort and this may be my own bias showing but I see so much effort from the right which is my cultural heritage politically to erode trust in institutions and and many of those institutions including media institutions are very um, worthy of criticism, but I see so much effort, whether it's media institutions, you know, targeted at media institutions, academic institutions, public bodies, to erode public trust in those institutions, that I agree that accountability for those institutions is part of how you restore public trust. But I'm also very wary of giving too much credence to to some of that attempted erosion because I don't want to be part of a snowball effect. And and I know that may not be a satisfying answer and it may not be a tenable position, but I just, I constantly find myself feeling like I need to (laughs) judge with carefulness in in a landscape where I think there's a lot of um, indictments from both sides, but because of my own background and my own sense of being really concerned about where the right has gone, I find myself probably defending so-called liberal institutions more than I might otherwise, because I'm so concerned about that trend line. I think that's a, a more than reasonable perspective to have, though. You know, and, I, and I, I completely understand the kind of the desire to support these institutions as they're under attack. Uh, and also, I think it's important that we talk about the fact that this is a really, really tough stuff to get right, because the pace of information is coming so quickly. And that's something that I, you know, I'm curious what y'all think. How can we? How can any one person reasonably be expected to keep up with this, even if they are getting it right? Because the pace of information is just so fast right now, and also there's so much gray. There's just so much gray. Yeah, I think, and Lucy's articulating something I've felt also, which is that the answer can't be. Even though I, I'm probably more critical, especially of the Times than either of you, the answer can't be don't trust anything ever. That that can't be the answer. And so there's a very difficult sort of tightrope to walk between, 
as you said, reading everything with great care uh, and reading everything with disbelief and um, and and sort of refusing refusing to believe even the true things. Sort of your filter can get so tight that nothing can get through can, can get through, and then you end up succumbing inevitably to confirmation bias in everything you read. And uh, and that I think is just as dangerous um, a thing to fall into. Okay, let's move to the second segment because there's this sort of is a carryover. It is very difficult to get um, good information out of, especially uh, Gaza, uh, because of the nature of reporting there. So it's it's you know it's maybe to be expected that um, that the that it's a harder thing to do reporting there. What's not as hard to do is cover domestic news accurately, especially within the United States. And I think there's been a big problem uh, with this as well. But um, over the last two months, there's been this brewing plagiarism scandal at Harvard University. Harvard President Claudine Gay has been accused of plagiarism in her dissertation. uh, And about half of the articles that she has listed on her, um, many have said uncharacteristically short resume for a university president. Um, The excerpts range from copying technical definitions to lifting other scholars' research that are either taken whole cloth or insufficiently paraphrased, um, in some cases without any direct citation of her source. Just as an example, in Gay's dissertation, she likely plagiarized Carol Swain's work at least twice with no citation. Um, uh, According to the New York Times... Uh, the New York Times asked Harvard to comment on uh, anonymous allegations of plagiarism in late October. The board of the Harvard Corporation appointed a three-member independent review board of scholars with, quote, no ties to Harvard to review Gay's work. And a Harvard spokesperson told the Times that the panel reviewed the allegations in the post-inquiry and then reviewed all of President Gay's published works from 1993 to 2019. They did not review her dissertation uh, because at the time no questions had been raised about it. And in a December 12th statement saying that Gay would remain president after her dismal testimony before Congress, which everyone will remember, uh, Harvard also said that the panel had found two papers that required additional citations, but that they didn't believe it reached the level of, quote, research misconduct, Um, which is, by the way, uh, intentionally, knowingly, or recklessly submitting work that was written by someone else. Harvard still hasn't called it plagiarism. Uh, They've been calling it, quote, duplicative language. Uh, a phrase which the New York Times then also used in its headline about the story and has been uh, the subject of wide scorn. Um, But over the last couple of weeks, the accusations have continued to pile up, and we're now up to at least 41 accusations while we're recording this. So, um, Lucy, this is your alma mater, uh, so I imagine you have some feelings about uh, watching Harvard go through um, not just the anti-Semitism uh, stuff in front of Congress, but now um, these accusations of of plagiarism by the president and the insinuation that she's being protected because she was a diversity hire and that this is a DEI uh, this is a, this is a DEI problem rather than a um, well I'll leave it there how how do you read this I find it pretty upsetting and I think Claudine Gay probably should resign I think it's really troublesome or. I think it's perturbing, let's say, that this episode, this issue around plagiarism, and I mean, 
this is more than duplicative language. This is, I was a very mediocre student at Harvard, and I can tell you that the standards that students are held to are very stringent around, I've never heard the term duplicative language, but around things like (laughs) duplicative language, around this kind of sloppiness any kind of perception that you have done anything that relate that remotely looks like plagiarism in most cases means you are automatically suspended for a year and you have to take a year off i mean this is you this is the stakes are not low around this kind of thing it's very serious um and i knew many people who were forced to take a year off because they were trying to get a paper out late at night and were copy pasting and tried to rewrite and didn't really or didn't cite who would go before the you know the ad board and basically be said well okay better luck next time you can come back in a year and if you do it again you will be expelled permanently right so this is not an institution that does not take these things seriously among students and i think it is clear that this is at the very least something that's quite problematic to have the person who is at the helm of the university be accused of these things, incredibly accused of these things. And there has been um, some messaging in recent days around the idea that, well, maybe the role of the president of Harvard is not to be a great scholar. It's to be more, more like a cultural, political activist force, whatever. And that is appalling, right? That's appalling. Harvard as a preeminent academic institution should be able to both have a excellent scholar who is notable in their field and has not um, been engaged in plagiarism desktops and can also be a force for broader cultural societal good. Harvard has had many presidents like this in the past. I am sure Harvard can find another person like this in the future. I am sure Harvard can find a black woman who fits that bill in the future, maybe immediately, right? Because there are many of them. What I really find upsetting about this issue, though, is how an institution like Harvard, because of its notability, it sort of becomes like everyone's ground zero for a culture war. And it is so troubling to me that the way that this all came out was because of the conflict over the Israel-Hamas stuff and the conflict over student activism in camp on campus and how we do or do not regulate free speech on campus and how, you know, when do we apply the standards and when we don't. And I think that people like Bill Ackman or other critics of Claudine Gay, Christopher Rufo, they're all foaming at the mouth with joy over this. And it really bugs me (laughs) that they are going to kind of be vindicated in this because these really are two very, very distinct issues. And activists like Christopher Rufo will tell you basically, like, we wanted to go figure out a way to get rid of this woman because we don't like what she stands for in other areas. And they've been given this big gift of this academic sort of problematic record and it just it 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 really troubles me that it's come to this because i actually think you can look back on the testimony uh, before congress for example and think wow these university presidents were terribly prepped 
terribly prepped. Don't get prepped by lawyers for a situation like that. Like get get Susan Del Percio to come prep you, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? Don't <laughs> be prepped by <laughs> lawyers who are thinking about what you're putting on the record. Um, but so that is is troubling. But yes, as I said at the beginning, I think she probably should should resign. And it's it's a sad chapter for Harvard. And I also think every day that she stays in is a gift to the Christopher Rufos of the world. I, I kind of feel like what's wrong with people? Like, you can't do that. If you're in a high-profile role, you're going to have a heightened level of scrutiny, and you can't do the things that she did and stay in that role. Like, I don't understand what the issue is and what the delay is. I don't understand why Harvard is further compromising their credibility by going to bat for, for Dr. Gay. I, I just don't understand it. It doesn't make sense— and I think you're right, Lucy. There's there's so many other potential applicants that would be excellent at the role from a wide variety of backgrounds. And I just don't understand why we're drawing the line in the sand. And I get you know people are kind of retreating to their camps because of how this started, but that's such a mistake. You've got to hold people accountable in positions of their high profile and in leadership when they've done something that you can't do. To to bring people up to speed who maybe weren't following the Chris Rufo stuff, these plagiarism accusations were first made publicly by uh, this guy Chris Rufo, who's a conservative activist. Um, and so they've been branded as an ideological hit job. One of the things that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, including me, was what Charles Fried said, who's a Harvard law professor, uh, former solicitor general, uh, told the Times, which was the accusations were, quote, part of this extreme right-wing attack on elite institutions. He also said, quote, if it came from some other quarter, I might be granting it some credence but not from these people, end quote. And so this now sort of underscores for me the degree to which this tribalism has infected what we will accept as fact and legitimate versus what we won't, which is the source. And I think that's a really dangerous thing to say. Um, there are now, by the way, pieces in uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Atlantic all calling for Claudine Gay to resign. And you can take this with a grain of salt, but Bill Ackman, who you mentioned, uh, this uh, billionaire investor, activist investor, has tweeted that he heard from someone that the board has asked Gay to resign and that she refused and that she's threatened to sue if fired. Um, so I just wonder, well, I wonder whether the, the, the left-leaning institutions who are now calling for her to resign will sort of inevitably... Um, tilt the balance here and she will have no choice but to go. Um, but I really worry about this precedent that, well, depending on who's leveling the accusation will determine whether we take it seriously or not. And yes, I get that it's, okay, maybe you don't want to give a win to the people you don't like, but sometimes the people you don't like are right. And they actually are motivated to find the things uh, that you are going to be cognitively uh, blind to. Uh, you are going to be predisposed to ignoring. And in fact, these plagiarism uh, incidents went unknown and unreported for quite a very long time um, to the point that Claudine Gay ended up as the president of Harvard. Like these weren't vetted and checked before she was um, sort of appointed to that position, it's sort of surprising to me. And so to get mad at the guys who are, even if you don't like them, even if they're terrible human beings, bring, bringing these things to light seems um, completely disingenuous, dis, uh, undefensible to me. Go ahead, Lucy. Yeah. And some of these were, um, some of these 
examples of duplicative language were recent. <laughs> they were, re- I mean, they were, so she is in her fifties. Um, so she's relatively young. Um, she's in her, I think she's in her early fifties. Uh, she, a lot of these, her dissertation was in the nineties, I think. Um, but, but a lot of these papers where this stuff has been found are recent. And I mentioned that because these were things that she was definitely doing on a computer. And it seems like there was a lot of copy paste going on. And I mean, she plagiarized someone's acknowledgements. She played uh, that's yeah. like, that's, there's, that's it's not a very silly. That's it's, not, <laughs> it's weird thing to plagiarize. And, yeah. And I think that if most people are being honest, there are times where when writing a paper or something, you copy paste sections from other stuff that you want to cite to, but it it is hard to imagine with some of this stuff. That's very different than taking a paragraph, plopping it, and you know, I don't know. I'm a big fan of page breaks in writing. Oh you know, yeah, you, like and it's very different. You put all that stuff after the page break, and you maybe do a big horizontal line. I mean, uh, yeah. anyway. Like, send, this is my sandbox of let stuff us, to mess with. Right. Yeah. Let yeah. us know. Right. <laughs> yeah. Let us know how you like to avoid plagiarism. But it is it is hard. I mean, I mean, maybe this is silly to kind of try to forensically think through what happened, but it seems like she was pasting pieces of pe- other people's work into like a word word doc, right? And then changing things around. It it is very almost it's sort of bush league plagiarism. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, and, um, and being an academic requires pouring over material being really, it, it requires a lot of discipline and an, and an appetite for, um, taking in a lot of information and distilling it and rigorously. Both, yes. <laughs> right. Yes. And I would hate to do that. I would, I would hate to be an academic. I hate doing <laughs> Like, I hate pouring over material, right? So it's okay if that's not your lane. But if you are going to become a professor, let alone a professor at an elite institution, let alone a professor at an elite institution who would like to be considered for um, being president of that elite institution, it's okay if we hold you to a very, very high standard. It just is. So going back though to the, the the kind of question you posed, Ron, about like why wasn't this vetted in advance? Like how are we just now finding out about these things? I think there's a lot of university presidents around the country that are a little nervous right now, that are maybe trying to figure out, oh, did I in fact do this correctly? Did I do that correctly? Because some of the stuff is some of the stuff is relatively small, but I think that this is far more common in academia than than folks really? believe. I don't I think do. so. I, do. <laughs> Actually, I don't know. I think so. that come on. I, we, I think we, if we, that was the case. Yeah. You would have seen people defending Claudine Gay by pointing to those examples thus far. But I think I am so happy to make this prediction now okay. and that over the course of the next year that it comes up, <laughs> there are more folks in academia. And I'm not saying that they're egregious. University presidents? Again, I think it's more department chairs. Do you, th- you think that there's a pandemic of department chairs <laughs> yeah. and university presidents who are plagiarists? I don't think I that's th- right. I think I that think in right academia- I will definitely take the under on that one, Zach. I think there is more duplicative language <laughs> in academia than any of us would expect. I don't think that it's like every chair, certainly nothing crazy like that, but I think that there's a handful of other ones that are probably pretty nervous right now. Think about it. I mean, we're, we're, we've all written papers in college, and you know, like folks will, will read somebody else for inspiration. Maybe they don't cite it properly. Like, I think that this is not- like a thing that doesn't ever happen. This is not some total anomaly. I think it's a bad 
thing, and I think that you shouldn't do this if you want to be president of the university, but I think this is a place, a thing that is happening elsewhere as well. Okay. Well, we will find out if you're right, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how we put uh, a, a benchmark on that, I well, guess, to win. I, mean, I, I can tell you how we can find out if you're right. Yeah. There is tons of software to detect plagiarism. <laughs> what we will do is <laughs> a vol- great volunteer project for someone for January. Go do a random audit of 50 university presidents, pull their CVs. Run them through ChatGPT. Run them through, yeah, they're all, I mean, they're all these plagiarism checker websites and, um, and then we'll see what we see. Speaking of ChatGPT, by the way, uh, this is not a story on the docket today, but the New York Times is now suing OpenAI yes. over the, oh God, the, the exhibits in this lawsuit are just eye-popping. The degree to which ChatGPT directly lifts paragraph after paragraph of New York Times reporting uh, without any changes. Um, so on the topic of duplicative language, we will find out <laughs> what is what is and what is not plagiarism and what isn't isn't uh, protected. I think that's going to be uh, one to watch. Go ahead. I'll just finish by saying, Zach, she plagiarized acknowledgments. These are the acknowledgments from another academic's 1996 book in that Jennifer Hawkschild says, in her acknowledgement, she describes a mentor who, quote, showed me the importance of getting the data right and of following where they lead without fear of favor, and quote, drove me much harder than I sometimes wanted to be driven. And then Claudine Gay says in hers, she thanks her thesis advisor, and she says that that person, quote, reminded me of the importance of getting the data right and following where they lead without fear of favor. And she thanks her family who, quote, drove me harder than I sometimes wanted to be driven. I just wanted to say, I do not think that you will find that most department chairs or university presidents have plagiarized other people's acknowledgments. I just don't. I'll just say that. I don't think I'm saying most. I think that this is a more common occurrence than than we expect. Because we again, like, what a, we what a weird out. thing to plagiarize. What a, what a baffling thing. Like she, her ideas were her own. It's the acknowledgments. And so like, that to me is, there's, there's a, it's publisher parish culture. There's a rush to get these things out there. And look, if there's a section that you're going to be able to get away with plagiarizing, presumably it's the acknowledgments. There's uh, the easiest so thing, there's right? A, you write that at like three in the morning, yeah. the day that you <laughs> turn in your thesis. So we're sort of, we're sort of circling around something without without actually touching on it here, but it is worth at least listeners being aware of this raging debate about the degree to which the, as Jonathan Hyde has put it, the telos of an institution like a university, which is supposed to be truth, has been supplanted with a competing telos, which is the purpose of social justice and how much DEI policies influenced the decision or weighted the decision against other perhaps more qualified, less uh, plagiarizing uh, candidates for this position because of the identity of uh, Claudine Gay, for example, being a black woman, you said they, they may choose to replace her with another black woman. The degree to which identity is, um, ha- has become a, a factor that is weighted uh, more than um, someone's qualifications or credentials for a position. And in the aftermath of Supreme Court overturning um, affirmative action, uh, in the words of Chief Justice John Roberts, um, I think it goes, the best way to end the practice of racial discrimination is to end the practice of racially discriminating, something along those lines. 
the degree to which this is going to be a much bigger topic in 2024 as as sort of the litigation that ensues in the wake of this decision impacts um, not just academia, but corporate America, et cetera. There's, there's this debate about, well, she's a black woman. Is that the reason she was hired? And there's a sort of racism of uh, the bigotry of low expectations here playing out um, in this scenario as well. Do you have thoughts? Well, it's also reasonable, I think, for someone to say when looking at that those kinds of structures and whether or not there is favoritism to say, yeah, institutions like Harvard at times may choose to specifically find a Black woman to be president of Harvard because that type of person has not had entree in these institutions historically. And that, you know, we have to make corrections for that. And so we are going to do that. And we are going to prioritize other categories that we might not have otherwise, because we want to bring about an institution that is correcting for the legacy of those before times. And we want young Black women to be able to see in Harvard an institution that promotes them, right? And that that where they could see themselves as people who are presidents of universities or at the helm of other institutions. And so it, it's not, it's, 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 it's not an, e- there's no easy answer to this because I think that there is, you can see how there's a lot of good faith <laughs> like happening among, among the people who are working to these people, you know, like give opportunities to people who might not otherwise have opportunities like that. And so I think it's quite complicated. And it's part of what makes this episode so problematic because this should not be happening, right? Because we also need at the same time to hold people like Claudine Gay to a very high standard because there are many Black women who are at the top of their game in academia who do not have this this kind of checkered past academically. And it harms all of them that this is happening because it lends credence to the idea that there are not. And that, you know, she was just sort of stuck in there because she's a black woman. So it ends up hurting like a lot of institutions beyond Harvard and a lot of people. Yeah, that's an argument um, actually you're encapsulating something John McWhorter wrote in his op-ed in the Times, yeah. the the linguist professor at um, linguistics professor at Columbia. Brilliant op-ed. People should read it. But I think that's essentially what he was arguing as well. Uh, black linguist professor at Columbia. Zach, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I think the road to hell is paved with good intentions, and I think there are good intentions behind a lot of the DEI efforts, but they're having some bad outcomes in a bunch of different ways. And we're seeing it in corporate America, we're seeing it on college campuses, and I think that that's just going to be an ongoing conversation, of, you know, as, as this is all still so new. Let's move on to the gorilla topic in the room. We saved the best for last today, which is the ongoing question raised by the 14th Amendment, Section 3, on the matter of whether President Trump is qualified to um, to hold the office of president. Um, so the news this week is that on Wednesday, the Michigan Supreme Court said that Donald Trump can remain on the primary ballot. They did not rule on whether he's eligible to run in the general election or serve as president. They basically bypassed the substance 
uh, of the of the question and just said we're just we don't we're not going to touch this. Um, the state supreme court ruling upholds a judge's decision to dismiss a lawsuit uh, seeking to keep Trump off the ballot using the Fourteenth Amendment's insurrectionist ban. This decision affirmed a lower court judge's ruling that the state law doesn't allow for elections officials to police eligibility on presidential primary ballots. Uh, their decision was unsigned. They didn't release a vote count. So unlike the Colorado ruling, this case was rejected wholly on procedural grounds. Um, the Michigan Supreme Court's order does not prevent voters from contesting Trump's eligibility to appear on the general election ballot, assuming he wins the primary. Uh, but we may have a ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court before we get to that point. And at this stage, you know, there are versions of this question that have been posed uh, via lawsuits in 30 or so states. Um, and last week, Colorado became the first state to rule that Trump is not eligible to appear on the primary ballot in the state. Trump, of course, vowed to appeal that ruling to the Supreme Court. And as of yesterday, the Colorado Republican Party has asked the U.S. Supreme Court to take up the case, which effectively puts this ruling on hold, potentially even beyond the January 4th deadline, which is when Colorado needs to know in order to put in order to print the ballots. All of this means effectively that Trump's name will be very likely on the ballot in Colorado unless the Supreme Court intervenes before January 4th. Let me just back up here so that listeners have the full context of what we're talking about. Um, and we've talked about this several times, but I'm going to read the text of the 14th Amendment, Section 3. No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office civil or military under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each house, remove such disability. Um, I have been talking about this since, God, uh, this was over the late summertime, I think. And Lucy, I think you and Mike and I were on the first podcast where we started to take this seriously. And um, there is a wide range of views that have been expressed around this. Um, uh, but for myself, I've been trying to immerse um, myself in as much really rigorous legal scholarship about the questions and not so much the political punditry because I don't think it's useful. Um, and at this stage, putting all my cards on the table, I'm convinced that the, that the substantive originalist arguments about whether Trump is qualified to be president are sound and uh, and I haven't heard any arguments against them that have been remotely persuasive. So uh, how are you reading all of this? Where do you expect it to go? And um, yeah, have they, have your views changed at all since we talked about this last summer? I think another piece of context, just if I can add a piece of context, is that the 14th Amendment is was adopted in the late 1860s. It was one of the amendments that was adopted in the Reconstruction era. So it was in the wake of the Civil War. And when you think about that context of the Union versus the Confederacy, you can kind of read the language with more context. Obviously, we should be able to take the language 
at face value regardless of the context, but that's important. I think that I too have been very bothered. I I sound I'm like becoming Susan Collins on this podcast. I'm like <laughs> really troubled by everything's troubling me today. No, I am bothered by the pundit tribalism that happened immediately um because this is very consequential. There was a great roundup in the Washington Post last week about this where they just rounded up a bunch of constitutional law experts and scholars. And one of them, a guy named Richard Hazen, who's at UCLA Law, he said basically, either way, this is like, quote, a uniquely uncomfortable moment for American democracy. Do you see how I'm citing to someone else and not attributing that language as my own? Love it. Do you see that? I'm not doing duplicative <laughs> language. Anyway, moving, moving, moving on, because I didn't say it because it's someone else's language, so it's not mine. <laughs> so I told you. It's like, anyway, going, anyway. But- the fact that the, I want more than anything for Trump to be defeated next year in 2024, I think he is a threat to American democracy. I think he is a very scary force politically. I spend m- almost all of my professional time working on trying to defeat Trump. You and I don't I don't like it when people say, "Yeah, beat him at the ballot box because if there was a remedy here that seemed like it was a valid, legitimate path, and again, I'm not a lawyer, I, I would say pursue every avenue, but you can't, it's also problematic to just hope for a, like an, an activist court to make a determination and throw someone off the ballot. And you can see how actually the Colorado Supreme Court decision standing could create a much bigger constitutional crisis and a much bigger crisis for us as a country. And I think that one of the pieces that's really missing here is that a lot of the language in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, uh, which you read, and thank you for doing that, it talks about a person having engaged in insurrection or rebellion. That is right now a, that's a judgment call. That's a subjective judgment about Donald Trump he has not been convicted of insurrection, and there's a lot that we probably don't have the bandwidth to get into right now, but about presidential immunity. But he has not been convicted of engaging in insurrection. When we talk about Trump and insurrection, that is a judgment that we are making where we're bringing our own biases to so to bear. And so saying that he's not... Um, He's not qualified to appear on the ballot or not qualified to hold office. And I think there's also some interesting stuff that we also probably don't have bandwidth for about being on the ballot versus holding office. But (laughs) you can take us there if you want. But based on the perception by the Colorado Supreme Court that he's committed insurrection, I do believe he was trying to incite insurrection, but I am not the arbiter of whether or not he did in, in in a court. And in this case, the Colorado Supreme Court should not either, because that is a separate legal determination than the determination of whether he uh, ha- whether he meets or doesn't meet this test based on the 14th Amendment. Yeah. So there's a couple of things here, and then Zach will go to you. Um the uh, a couple of a couple of things to note from my view. The big question is the court's gonna have to answer 
uh, if it if it's addressing the substance here and not just the process, is is this is this language self executing? Meaning, do, does it require Congress to pass a law to act, to activate it? General consensus is no. It is it is self executing. It doesn't require any additional steps. Is the presidency an officer under the United States? General consensus is yes. Uh, is the oath a president takes, which is to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution, encompassed by the word support the Constitution? General consensus is yes. Uh, was there an insurrection or rebellion? So these are two different questions. The language of the 14th Amendment doesn't require conviction of anything. It requires there to have been an insurrection, and it requires there to, uh, for, for the person to have engaged in it. There is no incitement stand. Uh, incitement uh, is not stated, and it doesn't say that there's a conviction necessary. And so, I think one big question will be whether the process that the lower court in Colorado went through to determine whether there was an insurrection sufficiently provided Trump due process under law. And there's a big question there about what is what is required for due process to have been served in that case. So that's a that's a big question. Um, but there's one other big point here, which I think you alluded to, which is this language doesn't say shall not appear on any ballots. It says shall not hold any office under the United States. And so there are legally multiple junctures here at which that could be decided. And the earliest and best would be for the court to decide it through this case. But the question in front of them is not whether or not you can be president. The question is whether you can be on the ballots. And those are two very different things. And what I'm, a, what I'm very concerned about is the eventuality of this ending up in front of Congress on January 6, 2025, in a scenario where he's permitted to be on the ballots, people are permitted to vote for him, and then we end up with Congress, which there's a very strong argument now that I'm aware of that I wasn't aware of before, that Congress doesn't have merely a procedural responsibility to count electoral college votes, but that actually they can, they do have a responsibility to act as a judge about the qualifications of the person to whom the office will be awarded. Go ahead. And the last sentence of section three is, you know, all this stuff disqualified, yada, yada, quote, but Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each house, remove such disability, end quote. So in theory, in a scenario where you'd had, I don't know, a civil war, let's say, you could, this is why the ballot versus holding office piece is important, you could have a majority of people, of voters, decide that not only did they want to see that person's name on the ballot, but they also were going to, in mass, vote for members of Congress who would get to that two-thirds to, quote, remove such disability of whatever, whoever it is, the president, someone else. And we would want the people to actually, we would want the will of the people to be reflected in that way. And that is actually why the ballot versus hold office is wonky, but is a very important distinction. Very important distinction. Yeah. And I'll throw one other thing out here, Zach, and then I know you got you get a lot of thoughts. <laughs> There's one other thing here, which is that timing is essential, meaning it is very possible that between the time that ballots are cast in November of 2024 and January 6th of 2025, 
new information may come to light or have come to light that that establishes without a doubt that Trump is not qualified to be president under this uh, under this constitutional provision, and that Congress will be required to exercise its its uh, its judgment unless, as Lucy said. Uh, there's a two-thirds vote in both houses to to remove that disability from him. So it's quite possible that that new that these Supreme Court cases, uh, sorry, that these uh, prosecutions could play out that he's convicted of other crimes which would disqualify him. Um, that that's all very very possible. This doesn't all have to hinge on January 6, twenty twenty one, and what we know as of right now. So, okay. You know, so so I, I find the arguments to to remove or block or whatever you want to call it rather persuasive, particularly Judge Ludig. I think that he's been phenomenal on, on this issue. I think the thing that I have a question about still is whether there's the actual political willpower to enforce these things, to actually do something about it. And we just don't know the answer with, the, with this court. And I'm so curious what y'all think. Like, when under the current court, do you believe there is the political willpower to actually enforce these things, assuming that they do hold up? Is it the court or is it state election regulators? <laughs> I think it's a mix, I guess. Well, as there's far a bunch as, of different layers and, and levels that get pulled, I guess. I'm really curious what Lucy thinks about this, but my view about the Supreme Court is that one way I'm looking at this is as a great big fat test of the sincerity of their originalism, and at least the conservatives. And um, and Justice Roberts may come down to be the linchpin in all of this because he, more than anybody else, has proven himself to be, I think, most concerned with the credibility of the institution. And, uh, and I think that he's going to have to weigh the credibility of the institution against the, against the sort of righteousness of the arguments in favor of blocking Trump from holding office. And, uh, and, and I don't know, but to me, uh, look, I, I think politically it's, it's going to be catastrophic if, if Trump's not allowed to be on the ballot. Um, but I think that's the whole reason you have laws and it's the whole reason you have, a, you know, like if, if not, if not for situations like this, what is the constitution for? Yeah. It's, it's a real damned if we do, damned if we don't situation. So might as well uphold the law and enforce it. Yeah, Lucy. Kind of like kind of like the damned if you do, damned if you don't quality that the impeachments had or the impeachment yes. after after Trump or the decision of whether or not to prosecute Trump in a variety of jurisdictions. It yes. is he is such a uniquely threatening figure, but because of the cult of personality around Trump, there there is, you know, proceed <laughs> at your yeah. own peril when you try to use these remedies, but to, to take him down. But of course, if you don't, you're also creating bad precedent. So it's very complicated. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm looking, yeah, I guess I'm just paying very close attention to the, um, the arguments that will be made, the substantive arguments that will be made about whether this applies to him and not, because I just haven't seen any good ones. And, uh, that that it doesn't apply to him, or that it shouldn't apply to him, um, legally speaking, constitutionally speaking. I haven't 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 seen any. Go ahead. An argument that I find frightening is that you know the precedents being set are going to get used against other candidates yeah. for 
maybe spurious reasons down the road. And I think that that's not a good reason not to move forward, but it's it's still frightening. It's that's, concerning. To, that's tomorrow. a right-wing boogeyman, isn't it? I mean, yeah, that's, I the, that's like a kind of Mike Johnson talking point, yeah. right? Like, if this can happen to you. Donald yeah. Trump. It could happen to any. Yeah, I mean, look, they can try. Yeah. You have the lieutenant. Go- is it the lieutenant governor of Texas now who said, "Oh, well, Dan if Patrick. they do this, then yeah, then Dan Patrick, who's going to say, well, then Joe Biden can't be on our ballot in Texas,' and like, right. see how far you get with that, right, bro? But <laughs> right. okay, you know, right. right. As as Mike has said on other episodes, in the context of impeachment or any of these things, like, bring it on, right? When, when yeah. Republicans yeah. engage that way, it's great because. It, it shows it really is kind of the it's a real emperor has no clothes moment for them yeah. because most yeah. voters can distinguish between even if they're not big Joe Biden fans, they can distinguish between Donald Trump's behavior and Joe Biden's, I believe. Yeah. Um, I will once again uh, point listeners who really want to go deep on this. Um, to uh, Akil Amar, Professor Akil Amar's podcast, America's Constitution, the most recent episode, uh, is which is two hours long, deals with all of the, well, not all of the, but some of the punditry that's been tossed about um, by various people about the Section 3 arguments. Um, it's just outstanding. It's an excellent resource. And if you if you want to truly understand all of the arguments, I recommend you go listen to everything they've published on it. Um, uh, specifically the, the, the sort of the legitimate reasons why Congress would and should object to toss out electoral college votes, which I think may have been even until now widely misunderstood by many people who after, you know, the, in the aftermath of January 6th were under the impression that Congress only and ever has a merely procedural responsibility to count votes and has no, um, no authority to, um, to object to them for any reason, which is actually, uh, I am persuaded, not the case. So, okay, this is our last weekly roundup of 2023. So, instead of sharing a story that you're watching, you know, over the next couple of weeks, we thought we'd try some predictions for 2024. Uh, and to Zach's point, well, I don't know if you want to use plagiarism as your thing, sure, but you should uh, you should apply some kind of measurable standard to this. Uh, it doesn't have to be super rigorous, but some way where we can know where you're right or where you're wrong. Yeah. Uh, so Zach, what did you bring? I believe that three to five, if not more, high-profile pro- academics will find themselves in hot water over some, uh, what's it called, du- duplicative language. And I know that's a ridiculous <laughs> prediction, but also, hey, it's the end of the year. Let's see what happens. Was that what you were planning to predict at the beginning of the episode? Or? It was definitely not. What I was planning <laughs> yesterday, I was going to, so this is this will tell you about my predictions. I was planning on pitching like, oh, maybe Nikki Haley's legit. And then then she's like no. said a terrible, stupid thing no. about the Civil War. So, so, you- so, no, so now I had to pivot to an even more outrageous <laughs> prediction, yes. I, I feel like I'd just like to state for the record, since we'll revisit this, I don't know, at the end of the year next year, that I think that you've really ratcheted down from your original prediction that this was, you didn't say most of, but you said it's something like much more widespread. Three to five yeah. is pretty low. Pretty low. I yeah. would call that more widespread than three to five. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think that's consistent with my previous statements. Well, you yeah. also said department chairs, right? There are thousands and thousands of Oh, those. yeah. No, I think I think department chairs can get away with it, is what I think. I think if yeah. you're in, I think once you get elevated to president, that's when you get caught. Because, I mean, when you look at how many people actually read some of these publications, it's like comical. It's like you can count on your hands. Have you ever sat in on like a friend's 
dissertation defense, that kind of thing, it's, you know? I've, I've been on I've been to three, and so far the furthest I've made in understanding it was slide number three. And, and for context, <laughs> most of these presentations are like dozens, if not hundreds of slides Oof. long. It's it's brutal if you don't if you're not in the field. Lucy, what do you got? What's in your crystal ball? My prediction is that Joe Biden will be reelected president in 2024. And if he is not, it will, we will be able to look at the cross tabs and see that it was um, because of the presence of the no labels so-called unity ticket on the ballot or, um, you know, possibly other third party stuff. But that when the tabulation is dry, we will see either a Joe Biden victory because we have succeeded in persuading um, people not to be lured in by the anti-democratic efforts of people like no labels, or we will see that those people who are um, want to uh, to roll the dice on our democracy and are threatening, not threatening, promoting ideas like that a contingent election would be really good for us spoiler alert, it would not be, um, have proceeded and that it was the presence, their presence on the ballot that tilted the election to Donald Trump. So Ooh, that's, that's quantitative and we'll be able to see if I'm right. That's quantitative. <laughs> that's good. such an interesting prediction. Uh, I, I'd love to hear kind of why you use the phrase un, undemocratic or, or for to talk about no labels. I think it's important the listeners hear that because I, I tend to agree, but I'd love to hear the kind of the why there. I think that no labels is fundamentally anti-democratic because they are a shadowy 501c4 organization whose donors we don't know, who operate in secret, who have raised large sums of money from a handful of donors to go out and pay paid signature gatherers to get ballot access, not for particular candidates, so that they can secure ballot access to then gift, essentially, to a would-be unity ticket, which will be chosen by the executives and donors of no labels, not by primary voters. They're not actually going to have presidential primaries. They are currently engaged in things like suing secretaries of state, including in Arizona, to block down-ballot no labels candidates because they don't want any down-ballot no labels candidates. So they went out and signature gathered for ballot access which is a way also to evade um, campaign finance regulations. It relies on an opinion called Unity 08 VFEC. Look it up if, you, if you've got the time <laughs> to get ballot access, which they actually now they are boosted by thousands of voters who said, sure, I'll sign your damn petition outside of my grocery store. But they are at the same time trying to block candidates who are rightful candidates as a no labels candidates down ballot, there's no transparency in this process of how anyone would become become the no labels unity ticket president, vice presidential candidate, whatever. Um, to me, that is not democracy in action, and in actually in action, not in action. And it is actually really reflective of a lot of behavior that is the opposite of of what pro democracy folks would do. And um, so that's why I think they're anti-democratic. Well, you know, when but... you put it like that. <laughs> <laughs> I have minor yeah. feelings on this. <laughs> okay, I have, a, I, have a, I have a couple that I may need your help um, quantifying. Um, okay. First, I think it goes without saying, I think that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is going to scramble 2024. Um, and 
if it happens early and they say Trump can't be on the ballot, then I think Joe Biden's not on the ballot. And then I think we have a completely different head to head. Um, so that's that. I, it, now, I think the likelihood of it happening early uh, via these vehicles is maybe lower than it ending up in Congress. So there's that. Uh, the two that I brought are first that the scientific consensus is going to shift to support the conclusion that the novel coronavirus of 2020 was the result of gain-of-function research funded in part by U.S. taxpayers performed in a lab in Wuhan, China, from which it escaped. I think that's coming in 2024. Um, And that the sort of establishment, as it were, that downplayed that as a possibility will have egg on its face. Also, by the end of 2024, I think mainstream financial institutions, which manage you know, massive funds of retirement accounts will be advising their people and retail investors to allocate a small portion of their portfolio to Bitcoin via one of the spot ETF vehicles, which are currently not yet approved by the SEC, but I believe will be. Those are my two. Are those sufficiently quantifiable? Yeah, but I guess we're getting the crypto episode in 2024, huh? We're going to have to. Yeah. (laughs) Ron, do you still love crypto? Crypto is not Bitcoin. Uh, these are two very different things. Uh, do you love Bitcoin? Uh, my conviction about Bitcoin has not wavered a bit since uh, since I first sort of grokked it. Um, and crypto, I believe, is the you know the vast majority of the scams that were crypto coins um, have been and or will be flushed out. Uh, of the system and that you're going to see a resurgence of those things, maybe with a little bit more oversight and regulatory clarification in 2024. Um, uh, But crypto is not Bitcoin. My conviction in Bitcoin hasn't changed. um, And crypto is still filled with like a lot of bullshit and scams. Okay, before we flip over to Politicology Plus, where we're going to talk about your smartphone listening to you. That's right. Your suspicions are true. Uh, Where can everybody find you on the internet, Lucy. I am on Twitter at <laughs> Lucy M. Caldwell. Zach? Oh, I'm embarrassed. I'm sad. I'm ashamed. I'm loving every second of being back on Twitter. Oh, I back. was off for like six months. You yeah. Were. It was you glorious. Life was better without it, wasn't it? Yeah, just get off. Everyone who who's on, you should get <laughs> off. I'm on at, at Zach CZ. Don't okay. follow me. Just delete your account. <laughs> yeah, but also if you do decide to get off of Twitter... Don't post about how you're getting off of Twitter because then yeah. you have to sort of come back. Yeah. Zach, you, John Podhoritz, yeah. all these. You have to sort of like come back and be like, just kidding. So just, just kidding. You know, if you decide to leave Twitter, just just ghost Twitter, just oh, Irish exit it's, Twitter. Yeah. It's like, like a, like a bad relationship with Twitter. Like every time I'm like, hey, like it's different this time. I'm back. Like, yeah. you know, but it's not different. It's, it's the same hellscape every time. But you're, you're just, you have to do the walk of shame when you come back instead of just, <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, hey, what's been going on, guys? I'm going to have a stock response at a certain point for every time I get <laughs> off and get back on Twitter. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening today. If you have questions about anything we discussed today, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Whether it's an episode idea, a topic recommendation, or just a simple note about what you thought. We love to hear from you, and we might even use it on an upcoming episode. Also, 
If you can head over to the Apple Podcast app and rate us five stars and leave a review there, we'd really appreciate it. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. I'm Ron Steslow, and I'll see you in the next episode.